This is the second of a two-part series of talks by Joel titled, Is There Help From Above? Recorded July 25th, 1993 at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Our lives are constant responses to these gross realm distractions, worldly distractions. It's amazing how little we control our lives. It's amazing how manipulated we are by our environment. And one of the essential things on a spiritual path is to get control of your life. There is almost nobody who cannot put aside half an hour of a day, if they took control of their lives, to go off into a room and shut the door. It's actually quite simple. But it is an absolutely necessary first step, making the time. Here's what Hasidic master, Naman of Bratislav says, A man should set aside at least an hour or more during which he is alone in a room or a field so that he can converse with the maker in secret, entreating and pleading in many ways of grace and supplication, begging God to bring him near to his service in truth. He sounds like some old shaman, doesn't he? Go into your room, go off into a field. These people live in farming communities mostly. So you can converse with your maker in secret, just what Jesus said. Prayer doesn't start with any big mystery about it. It's conversing with God. And then he says, entreating and pleading in many ways of grace and supplication, begging God to bring him nearer to his service in truth. The second point about go into solitude, and then what you have to do is cry out. Why crying out? Crying out has this sense of urgency and passion and purpose in it. And sometimes we learn prayers as children, and, you know, it's just a little family ritual. And that's fine for family. I believe in family rituals. But that doesn't have the quality of crying out. The other reason for solitude here is not only that we're distracted by things in our environment when we want to focus our attention on getting help from above, we're also embarrassed. We feel silly. We feel self-conscious. A grown man or woman doesn't go into room and cry out to God, especially in our culture especially, I should say, in the sophisticated circles in our culture. One of our biggest obstacles is pride. You try it and see. I tried a, a version of this practice on my spiritual path, completely improvised. I'd gone to this workshop where they were going to teach shamanic practices, and I realized they didn't want to do the practices that this guy was teaching. So I thought, well, I'll just make up my own. And I went out on a hillside behind my cabin. Those of you who read my book may remember. And I drew a circle and I sat down. I didn't really know what to do, but I was crying out for help. And half the time I was thinking, oh my gosh, I hope nobody comes along and sees me here. I mean, this looks silly. This is ridiculous. Unfortunately, no one ever did come by. I don't know what I would have done. Now, this is very interesting because what happens, it brings self to the fore. 
right there. You have a very strong sense of self when you are embarrassed, when you are self-conscious. That's what it means. It brings up all sorts of things. The ego's desire to be supremely in control of life, not to depend on anyone else or anything else. It's absurd. But this is the way the ego would like to be. The ego's imagination, the ego's fantasy. And the minute we are in a situation where that's challenged, we get uncomfortable. So just going into a room and sitting down and trying to cry out and feeling all that in itself is a valuable spiritual practice. You'll get to confront ego. You'll get to confront self. You'll get to confront pride right there. It'll come right out. But listen to what Theophane, the recluse, who is a great Orthodox prayer master, says. The essence of prayer is therefore the spiritual lifting of the heart towards God. The mind and the heart stands consciously before the face of God, filled with due reverence, and begins to pour itself out to Him. Again, this outpouring directed at God without any other distraction, just this upwelling. This is this crying for a vision, isn't it? What is this outpouring? Is there a special way to do it? Let's get a concrete example. This is, I want to read you a few verses of poems by Mirabai. Mirabai was a great bhakti, Hindu bhakti mystic. Bhakti is the path of devotion. The form that she was supplicating is the form of Krishna, which is a Hindu god. Brahman, the consciousness, appears in the form of Krishna. And Krishna has other names used in here, Hari and whatnot. So if you hear other names, there are various names of Krishna. Come to my house, O Lord of the universe. My body is in pain, my breathing burning. Come and extinguish the fire of separation. I spend nights roving about in tears. Appetite and sleep have left me, but my shameless life clings on. Grant me happiness. Do not desolate me. Delay no longer. Thy abandoned mirror is in sore straits. O yogi, if you would but grant me your sight, great would be my joy. Otherwise, life on earth is only pain, a continuous suffering in your absence. Day and night my sufferings have driven me mad. I have tramped the whole country through. Mira has been your true servant. Now her black hair has turned white. Without thy sight I feel no rest. I am happy neither in the house nor in the courtyard. Hari, the indestructible, is Mira's lord. Come and grant me thy sight. O Krishna, did you ever rightly value my childhood love? Without your sight I feel no ease. My mind swings this way and that. Mira says, I am yours. My darling, grant me your sight. I cannot exist without you. Life without you is like a pond without a lotus or a night without a moon. I pass the nights in deep distress. The pain of absence eats my heart. No food by day, no sleep by night. No words pass my lips either. Who will listen to me? To whom can I speak? Come, my beloved, and quench my pain. 
Why do you torment me, O inner ruler? If you came, my pain would go. Mira is your servant. Her love has run from many births. And it goes on and on and on. Notice, th this isn't sitting down sort of like at a tea party with God, you know, and carrying on polite conversation. And notice that what she's complaining about here is that Krishna doesn't show himself, doesn't answer her. And so she pours out more and more and more, crying out. She had a gift of speech, but God doesn't care, you know. You can stumble and stutter around. It's the feeling in here, this quality of heart. Now, supposing you don't have this feeling. A lot of people, you know, they say, well, I, don't, I just don't feel it. I don't, you know, I wouldn't know what to say. I, I'm not only embarrassed, but then I don't have that passion that Mirabai has. Here's what Namana Bratislav says about that. Even if it happens to be the case that he finds himself incapable of opening his mouth to speak to God at all, Yet this is good in itself, namely the very preparation in which he makes himself ready to speak to God, although he cannot actually do so. And he can make up a prayer and carry on a conversation with himself regarding this very thing. Regarding this very thing he should cry out in prayer, that he has become so remote from God that he finds himself unable even to speak to him. It's a little bit like meditation. I always say, you know, there, there's no such thing as a bad meditation. If you have confusion, meditate on your confusion. If you can't speak a prayer, well, pray about speaking a prayer. We're starting right here at the beginning. There is no prerequisite. You don't have to believe in God. You can just direct the words beyond yourself. You don't have to believe any sort of God or anything. Perhaps I should take that back. There's one prerequisite. You just have to have at least the humility that you are not the greatest person in the whole universe. There are some people who don't have that humility. Then, and no one can help you if you're at that stage. That's, grace has to awaken you out of that deep ignorance. But if you just have the slightest sense that there is anything worthwhile beyond the boundaries of yourself, you can pray. You can cry out. You can turn to that. You can worship. As I said last Sunday, worship means being orientated towards what is most worthy. If there is anything worthy outside self, that's what you turn to doesn't matter. You don't have to have any belief in God, any dogma, anything at all. Prayer, like meditation, like other spiritual practices, will develop through practice. But you just can begin without knowing anything. Prayer, if you continue it, deepens through practice and through concentration. And that's the other thing that all these shamans talked about. Finding someplace solitude, being alone, praying in secret, then crying out, and then 
concentrating. In the beginning, you may just be able to concentrate for 15 seconds. You may find it easier, by the way, in praying than in meditation to concentrate for longer periods of time. But prayer is just like meditation, and this is something else, particularly in our society, that we have lost track of. I say, our Father who art in heaven, or whatever my tradition is, and I say my prayer, and that's it. And I, you know, do that every day, and we think that prayer just exists on this one level, that it cannot lead you deeper and deeper and deeper. This is the difference now between mystical prayer or a mystic's prayer and just the rote prayer of dogmatic worshipers. Theophane the Recluse, this orthodox uh, master of prayer, describes, according to their tradition, five degrees of prayer. At first it is only the prayer of the spoken word. But with this must go prayer of mind and heart, warming and maintaining it. Later, mind in heart prayer gains its independence, becoming sometimes active, stimulated by one's own efforts, and sometimes self-moving, bestowed as a gift. Prayer as a gift is the same as inward attraction towards God and develops from it. Later on, when the state of the soul under the influence of this attraction becomes constant, mind and heart prayer will be active unceasingly. And then finally, he says, all earlier temporary attractions now become transformed into states of contemplation, and it is at this point that contemplative prayer begins. Wow, there are these five degrees before you get to contemplative prayer, and then he goes on and about degrees of contemplative prayer. We've been reading recently in our Wednesday group this book by Ayakema, which describes the eight absorptions that you attain through Buddhist meditation practices. It's the same pie, cut up a little bit differently and approached a little bit differently, but it's the same phenomena from one tradition to another, this deepening of this process and what happens along the way. So he says we start with the verbal prayer. If you wanted to take up a practice of prayer, you go into your room, you go off for a weekend by the beach or something, and you start with that and persist with it and stay with it. Don't just go out and, and say, uh, duh, gee, God, are you there? Oh, no answer. Well, I guess that didn't work. You persist with it, and this feeling will come. Here's what Anandamoyamaya, a great Hindu saint, says about this. To concentrate on God means to become drawn towards him. Isn't that just what Theophane said, you know, about this attraction, being attracted towards God? And attachment means becoming disentangled from sense objects. The idea is that you're being drawn towards God, you're turning your attention towards God, and in order to do that, you have to be detached from all worldly concerns. You're entering the, the upper half of this hourglass, you're directing your attention to it, and you have to let go of the bottom half. We've all heard this before, but now listen carefully to Ananda Moyamai, because she's got a big clue about what this actually means here. She goes on, she says, Feeling pulled towards the divine and indifferent to sense objects occurs simultaneously. Renunciation happens of itself. There is no need to give up anything. 
This is real, genuine renunciation. If any of you are out there busy trying to renounce and trying to practice detachment and all that, forget it. Concentrate your attention on the divine in worship, in being orientated, turning to what is most worthy. It will happen naturally. There's no big effort to give up anything. Because when you actually are attracted and drawn, you'll be like Mirabai. You won't want anything else. If you practice the concentration, detachment will happen spontaneously. The only thing to do here is, just like in meditation, if you're praying and your thoughts wander off, bring them back. Bring them back. Listen to, again, what Theophone says. You must not allow your thoughts to wander at random, but as soon as they run away, you must immediately bring them back. St. John of the Latter says of this, you must make a great effort to confine your mind within the words of prayer. That first part could have been said by a Buddhist or a, a Hindu or, you know, how many times have you heard this instruction? Don't allow your thoughts to wander at random, but as soon as they run away, you must immediately bring them back. But now this is interesting. He goes on to say, or to quote St. John of the Latter, you must make a great effort to confine your mind within the words of the prayer. It's beautifully put here. You, the mind enters into the words of the prayer. The prayer becomes like a channel through which thoughts are directed. It's not cutting off thought. It's not even ignoring thought. The difference here between the kind of meditation that we do, object and prayer, is that prayer channels thought, directs it into laser-like attention. And as thought gets channeled, of course, attention gets channeled. Attention follows the thought. So remember that image, if you ever want to try this practice, to confine the attention within the thoughts of the prayer. Now, for what should you pray? And this is an important question. Because again, this is where prayer can be abused. If you pray for selfish things, you're bound to be disappointed. And not maybe right away. Maybe it'll work for a while. Maybe you'll pray for some money and you'll win the lottery. And you'll say, oh, God answered my prayer. How wonderful. Gee, I can get anything I want. God's a big cow. I can go milk. You know, whenever I need some milk, I go there and milk this cow. This was a teacher I once had used to say, some people think God is a cow. God is not a cow. God is an earthquake. <laughs> if you treat this this way, you're setting yourself up for some horrendous suffering. And several of you mentioned that when you got to be 12, 13, 14, religion went out the window. Often it's because you found out you couldn't get all the little goodies that as a child you thought you might get. My experience with this was the thing that turned me off in an instant. And I had this wonderful relationship with Jesus. And I woke up one morning and uh, my dog had been sick all through the night. My mother had been up with the dog and I was going to school and we always had a little chapel you know, service at the beginning of school. And the dog was dying. And she was been up and she'd been crying. It's been a family dog, you know, for 14 years or something. And I said, don't worry, Ma. I mean, I'm about, I don't know, nine there. I'll pray for him. I got an end with the father here, you know. 
I had full expectations to work. I went to church, and I prayed that the dog got better, and I was absolutely convinced. I mean, I didn't think about it all. Then I got home, and I said, where's the dog? And she says, he's dead. Boom. This is an exoteric delusion about prayer. You think that you got an in with God, and so the ego thinks, aha, now I can get prosperity and health and all the things that I want. All mystical prayer, prayer that's going to lead you beyond yourself, is never about what you want in that sense. Hasidic masters say, take yourself out of the words of your prayer. Let your prayer not be for yourself or for your household, but only for the sake of God and his presence. Rabia says, uh, she's a great Sufi saint. Her prayer is very simple. She says to God, give the things of the world to your enemies. That's interesting right there. You know, give them the castles and the lottery tickets and all that, because truly it's a punishment. Give the things of paradise to your friends. Spiritual consolations, experiences. Give me only yourself. All mystics, whenever they talk about prayer, always talk about this way. You're letting God know in a certain sense, I'm speaking, by the way, poetically here, but I'm speaking in a way that reflects experience. You're letting God know simply that you're there, just by the way, what Igu Jarguk said. His shaman told him to go in the snow hut and sit there and just let Pinga know he was there, waiting. Krishna tells Arjuna the same thing. Directing your thoughts to me, by my grace you will overcome all obstacles. But if you are centered in yourself and hence unable to listen, you will perish. Very simple here. Selflessness. Prayer is an opening of the heart, uh, an outpouring of self. A transcendence of self, going beyond all your worldly concerns and so forth. Remove yourself from your prayer, as the Hasidic masters say. Remove yourself from all of your work, by the way, and all of your work will become prayer. When the mind is focused on the divine in prayer, the prayer descends into the heart. Upanishads say, with upright body, head and neck, lead the mind and its power into the heart, and the Om of Brahman will then be the boat with which to cross the rivers of fear. Listen to what Theophane says now, the Orthodox. Turn to the Lord, drawing down the attention of the mind into the heart, and call upon him there. What does this mean? Drawing the attention down into the heart, drawing the mind into the heart. It's something, truly speaking, you have to experience for yourself. It's actually almost equivalent of a physical experience of the attention not being centered in the head, but in the physical heart. And there's often a lot of instruction to direct attention to the physical heart. 
But really what is the sense is more the center of attention, not feeling like it is centered in thought. Usually we're very identified with thought. Thought is uppermost in our mind. And this is a relaxing of that, and it's a feeling as if suddenly attention dropped back into a deeper part of the self, and now thought is still going on, but thought is more on the periphery. Emotions are still going on, but they are now on the periphery. It's finding a different center than is normally experienced in worldly life. And it does have that sense of, oh, a shift here. Then, the next stage, as Theophone described it, is this unceasing prayer. What could that possibly mean? How is it possible to pray unceasingly? Unceasing prayer we associate with a Christian tradition. But the Quran says, Remember your Lord in your heart, humbly and with awe and without utterance, at dawn and at dark, and be not amongst the neglectful. The remembrance of God. This is the basis of the whole Sufi practice of zikr. The continual, unceasing remembrance of God. Ananda Moyamai says, his presence and the remembrance of him must be sustained unceasingly. Unceasingly? How could that be unceasingly? I mean, you know, you got to pay the bills, you got to balance your checkbook, you got to take a shower. Dmitry of Rostov writes, whoever man is, his heart is always with him. And so, having collected his thoughts inside his heart, he can shut himself up and pray to God in secret. Whether he be talking or listening, whether among few people or many, inner prayer, if it comes to a man's spirit when he is with other people, demands no use of lips or of books, no movement of the tongue or sound of the voice. And the same is true even when you are alone. All that is necessary is to raise your mind to God and descend deep into yourself. And this can be done anywhere. You know, it's interesting, and in, uh, particularly in China and the East, they do lots of practices that involve worldly activities. For instance, uh, the art of flower arranging, or uh, sword fighting, or tea ceremonies, or Tai Chi, and all this stuff all designed to produce harmony with the Tao. What is harmony with the Tao? What is the quality of action that happens without a division between I and other? All these practices are really about living life as a prayer from the heart. This is no longer now a prayer that has to have words, as Dimitri says. What you started with, this crying out to God, conversation with God, talking to God, pleading with God over and over and over, channels the attention, channels the uh, concentration, focuses it out towards the divine, and suddenly, in a certain sense, you feel out. It's brought you out to some other place. Not completely out, but to some other place that isn't so centered in self. And there you are. 
Being there becomes the prayer. You don't need the words. From a prayer directed to some image of God like Mirabai has, and she writes about Krishna with his bangles and his ashes and so forth, she's got a visual image in her mind. This is how he's presented in Hindu iconography. He's got a flute and this and that. You start with that sort of image and so forth, and you discover the presence of Krishna, which doesn't need any images. To be with the presence of Krishna is prayer. How can you develop this unceasing prayer? Exactly the same way you do with uh, developing mindfulness in meditation. Remember during the day. Say a little prayer. Hi, God, it's lunchtime. Here I am. Here I am would be a wonderful prayer. Just that. Uh, every time you had a moment, you just inject into that stream of thought that's going on some little prayerful thought. Amazing how much it'll change your experience of your life during the day. When the Orthodox talk about unceasing prayer, eventually they're talking about prayer that takes over, that is happening where there's no effort whatsoever on the part of the prayer. The prayer is just going. The prayer, then, is keeping this sense of presence alive. And it's going whether you're at a cocktail party or whatever you're doing. It doesn't matter. And this is the exact same description that is given in Hindu and Buddhist traditions about practicing with a mantra. Then this unceasing prayer leads to contemplative prayer. Now, what is contemplative prayer? Here's how Theophane describes this. The state of contemplation is a captivity of the mind and of the entire vision by a spiritual object so overpowering that all outward things are forgotten and wholly absent from consciousness. The mind and consciousness become so completely immersed in the object contemplated that it is as though we no longer possess them. This is a Christian description of samadhi, of a state of absorption that you can read about in any Tibetan text, that you can read about in Hindu texts, the mixing of consciousness with the object, the losing track of all uh, other objects, that there is now just one object, so powerful that even self is forgotten. It's not yet consciousness without a subject and an object. This isn't gnosis. But it's losing that sense of self in this orientation towards the divine. A state of absorption. Now, what is the value of this state? Aside from the ultimate value that in these high states the possibility of enlightenment, of gnosis, is very strong, it is in these states that archetypal guides generally appear. They don't generally appear to you while you're shopping at the local Safeway. The dream state is such a state, or can be such a state. All objects vanish in dreamless sleep. Then they're put together in a subtle way in dreams. 
a vision doesn't happen. Uh, you're sitting here and then the Virgin Mary appears over here and looks like she's, you know, a part of the group. If that happens to you, you're probably having a hallucination. In visions, this world vanishes for a moment and something else is seen. I had a vision of a thousand springs becoming a mighty stream, which I described in my book. And I was just sitting there, I think it was after meditation, I was just thinking about what I was going to do with my life in a, in a very relaxed way. And suddenly, it's like my room vanished and I saw this, uh, this vision. I saw myself sitting on top of this rubble and, and all these uh, springs were coming out of it and all flowing together. And there was not a voice, of a physical voice, but a, like that kind of voice you hear in a dream. Said a thousand springs become a mighty stream. Boom, I went away and I was back in my room. And it's in these contemplative states, most often, that archetypal figures will appear. This is why the shamans went out to the hilltop to meditate, to concentrate, to pour out their heart in solitude, praying for a vision. And then, if they're lucky, and they don't, they didn't always get a vision, if they're lucky, a vision came by grace. An animal would appear, a buffalo, give you some instruction. What is the nature of this guidance, these forms? We read about shamanic vision quest, and, and remember the first Pawnee chief here, he says, you know, they went out and they prayed to an animal to give them some wisdom. And in our culture, we tend to think, oh, I got to go out and go to a Native American ceremony because that's where this can happen. We tend to forget that this is very common through all spiritual traditions. Socrates, for instance, had what he described a Damien, a woman who guided him all through his life. Teresa of Vila, Hildegard of Bingen, all were guided by voices, as they called them, all through their lives. One of the keys that Teresa of Avila describes is that very often she got guidance she didn't want. I mean, the instructions were things she didn't want to do. This is very important. If you have a guy that's always telling you all the things you want to do, it's not a good guy. <laughs> you don't need a guy that tells you all the things you want. You need a guy who tells you things you don't want to hear or to do things that you don't understand. Abina Rabi wrote a whole book called Sufis of Andalusia about all the great Sufi masters that he'd met in his time. His two most important incarnate teachers, in flesh teachers, were two women. But his greatest teacher was Kadir. Kadir is an archetypal Sufi figure who appears to Sufis. That's how he was taught. Even in Buddhism, now listen to this carefully, because Buddhism, as it's come to this country, has come in a very rational guise. A lot of Westerns are attracted to Buddhism because there isn't an idea of God in the same way there is in other traditions. And so many Westerners like that, and then they read the Buddhist text, and it's very interesting what they filter out. You don't hear much talk in Western Buddhist circles about spirit guides and so forth, and they tend to poo-poo all that. Here's the Lakmatara Sutra, which is one of the basic and one of the most profound Mahayana texts. There are two kinds of sustaining power which issue from the Tathagatas. And the Tathagatas are realized Buddhas. And are at the service of the Bodhisattvas. 
The first kind of sustaining power is the Bodhisattva's own adoration and faith in Buddhas, adoration and faith, worship, praise of Buddhas, by reason of which the Buddhas are able to manifest themselves and render their aid and to ordain them with their own hands. The Buddhas come and manifest to the Bodhisattvas, and they guide them and they ordain them. This is nothing but spirit guides. This is nothing but animal powers. And the second power the Bodhisattva gets at this stage from the subtle realm Buddhas is the power to resist the temptations of the blisses of those samadhis. The reason is because the bliss is not the main object of the state. The main object of the state is wisdom. Anyway, you can read in a contemporary account of this, again, in a book by a little-known mystic called Naked Through the Gate. And uh, the main part of this book is Athena. When this happened to me, I must tell you, I at times doubted whether I was uh, going insane or not. And I thought it was very unique to me. And it was only later, after reading through the biographies and autobiographies and accounts of other spiritual practitioners, that I realized how common it was. And I thought it was something very unique. (laughs) It's very common, and it's also... um, I think more common with the more thick-headed people, you know, as I was. If you're more spiritually sensitive, guidance may not come in as vivid forms, as dramatic forms. You may just get guidance through insights. If you're very thick-headed, then you need more fireworks to to break through. So don't ever uh, take as an occasion for pride to have a a dramatic vision. It just means you're especially (laughs) thick-headed. But in these states intuitions, insights come. You can understand things. You can see things about the nature of phenomena, about the nature of reality, about the nature of yourself that are impossible to see in normal states of consciousness. That's the value of all this. It is wisdom. And to experience the kind of love that is talked about in all traditions. This is what we're looking for. Now, I got to bring up this question at the end here, because we listen to all this, and then we say, yes, but aren't these things really imaginary? I mean, wasn't Athena really imaginary? And wasn't Jesus appearing to Paul on the road to Damascus imaginary? Yes. The answer, the truth is yes, that's all imaginary. It's imaginary, but it is no more imaginary than anything else you are experiencing. And in fact, in a relative sense, you could say it is less imaginary. It is closer to the reality that stands behind all this, just by virtue of its being more transparent to that reality. The question to ask is not, is this real or not? And not to get into big ontological debates about all this. The question asked is, what is the value of the guidance that you're getting? Now, I talk a lot here about insights and guidance and whatnot. I'm going to give you one last concrete example of someone who got just such guidance, just through such a vision. And this is Julian of Norwich, who was a great Christian mystic, and she wrote this book called Showings. Showings refers to these visions that she had, which she called God showing her things. And she's describing one, and she says, And after this, I saw God in an instant of time, that is, in my understanding. 
and by this vision I saw that he is present in all things. Now, we hear this teaching, God's presence in all things. I start off this afternoon by saying consciousness permeates all forms and so forth. She heard this teaching. It's not something new to her. But listen how she puts this. And after this, I saw God in an instant of time. It has this suddenness. And by this vision, by this vision, by this sudden, deep, overwhelming understanding, I saw that he is present in all things. Now, I contemplated it carefully, knowing, perceiving, through it, that he does everything which is done. Again, she's been in the Catholic Church all her life, this woman. She's heard this God does everything and so forth. These are not new teachings. It's a new understanding that she's experiencing here. I marveled at this vision with a gentle fear, and I thought, what is sin? For I saw truly that God does everything however small it may be, and that nothing is done by chance, but it is of the endless providence of God's wisdom. Nothing is done by chance. We might think that, but do we experience that? Do we experience everything happening as being significant, meaningful? That the whole world as it unfolds is drenched in meaning. And then she says, Therefore I was compelled to admit that everything which is done is well done. And I was certain that God does no sin. Therefore, it seemed to me that sin is nothing. For in all this, sin was not shown to me. Now, she probes this vision, and then she asks, and what could sin be? And then she gets another vision later on about sin. It's a deepening process. She's not in a dialogue with God where God's talking to her and so forth. She's in a dialogue with wisdom with understanding, which deepens and deepens, which alters her experience of life irrevocably forever, not just in a state of absorption. You can go into a state of absorption, you can have lots of bliss, and then you come back down. And it may not change anything. Maybe some of you experienced this going off from retreat or something, and you get into these wonderful states and you come back to this world. If you come back with wisdom, the wisdom translates. That's what changes the experience. It can be solicited by prayer, but it cannot be commanded by the will. Visions do not appear on command. Significant dreams do not appear on command. Animal powers do not come to you on command. It is the element of grace, the reaching up and a reaching down. It is a very profound practice, or can be a very profound practice, provided... You don't make two exoteric errors. And one is not to seize upon whatever uh, happens during the course of prayer as being itself ultimately real, like a vision or a dream. That you always see that whatever form appears is still a form through which the divine is showing, that the form itself is not the object. And then the other one is not to think of this as gaining a personal power to utilize for selfish ends. Once they start getting uh, into states of absorption, people do imagine they can use cities, as it's called in the East, for personal power. And in every Eastern school and tradition, there are warnings against this. 
And sometimes the warnings are stated very strongly. And they should be, because all this does come with a warning label. I'm going to read it to you. Conjuring spirit beings for selfish ends may be hazardous to your sanity. Literally, there are accounts of people going insane. This is why it is stressed in every tradition. This is to be approached with humility, reverence, awe, contrition, repentance. You cannot approach the subtle realm forms with an arrogant, prideful, uh, egomaniacal attitude safely. But if you practice prayer in the right way, with a proper attitude, then it's a wonderful means to open the heart and open the mind. And I pray that all your hearts and minds may be so open. So that's the end of the long, windy talk this morning. If there are any questions uh, or any comments or discussion, now's a good time. Yes? And I want to go back to the subject of the motive of prayer. And you distinguish between prayer that uh, asks for some fruit or which is selfish and prayer which isn't. And uh, as I understand, you talk about, uh, or an example of prayer which isn't, if someone asks for some guidance, whatever the, uh, that guidance may be, which may, may be unpleasant to the seeker. But if someone's asking for guidance, that's probably because they're in some personal distress or paralysis or, or crisis, and they want a way out of it. So it is some, somewhat selfish, or it is selfish. This is true. All spiritual seeking really starts from a selfish motive, and it does. There's no getting around it. Uh, and this always produces paradoxes. Let me put it this way. Um, what happens if you pray for selflessness? Yeah, what happens? So if they're praying from a selfish motive, if their prayer is answered, it'll destroy the self that's praying from a selfish motive, right? right. So if it's a problem for you, take that as a prayer. If you're constantly finding yourself in the prayer, then you know, you're running up this problem that the Hasidic master talked about. If you find yourself praying and you're stumbling over, gee, everything I say I can see is selfish, then turn that into the prayer. Say, I'm praying to learn how to take myself out of this prayer. It is all paradoxical. That's what makes it work. The difference between a spiritual path and a worldly path is this. A worldly seeker pursues selfish ends and may get them or may not get them, but there's no end to that pursuit because the methods and the way it's pursued uh, just keeps leading to more and more and more. You can never get enough. So either you don't get what you want and you suffer or you get what you want, but it's not enough. So you have to go farther and farther. A spiritual path, on the other hand, begins the same way, but a spiritual path is designed to self-destruct. So you, you start off for selfish reasons, selfish motives. I'm unhappy. I'm cut off from God. I want to know about this bliss all these mystics talk about. I want to be free of suffering and death. That's no doubt about it. But the practices themselves are designed to trip you up. They will self-destruct you. So this is why when you sit there and you try to figure this out 
at that rational level, it's a paradox. It's by doing the practice that you see. I'm not discouraging you from asking the question. I'm discouraging you from trying to get an intellectual answer. Ask the question, let the question direct you to a practice and try it, see what happens. Does it make sense to combine a practice that includes prayer and meditation? Certainly, Tibetans do it. Okay. They're, they're pretty good practitioners, you know. They, they've got a tradition that's not to be sneezed at. <laughs> Most Tibetan practices, you start with prayers, a series of prayers, and then you do your meditation. Okay. Yeah, I would recommend even combining them. Okay. A little warning at the end, um, conjuring. Uh, you again. <laughs> Conjuring spirit beings for selfish ends may be hazardous to your sanity. It kind of made me think of all the people who are historically now deemed to have been insane, who had great power at the time, you know, like Hitler and all kinds of other um, people. And, and it makes me wonder whether or not, um, you know, the spiritual path is sort of just the opposite of seeking control over life, you know, and, and yet... And yet it's a little confusing to me because you said most people don't are lazy. They don't try to take control over their lives. So, you know. Another paradox. Yeah. They don't have true control over their lives in the sense that um, it, it's funny. It's, I mean, it's right away you start to learn something about yourself. When you think, yeah, I'd like to do a little meditation. And then a week's gone by and you haven't done it. You know? And you hear you think you're in control of your life. Maybe you're a big executive or something. Or a hotshot lawyer, right? And you can't even put aside half an hour for meditation? Who's in control here? See, it raises this question. Um, again, the, the, the answer to this is that analogy I gave last week, I think, or before, about the stick that you stir the funeral pyre with. You use the will in the beginning to generate the practice. Then, ultimately, the practice consumes the will. So, ultimately, yes, the practice is not about getting control. The practice is about surrendering control. But in order to get to even doing the practices, you need control. You Really, what you're doing in the beginning is channeling things like desire, will, thought. Do you know what I mean? If you could drop them all, go ahead and drop them all and just do it. But we can't. So now it's about, instead of wanting desiring worldly things, you're desiring spiritual things. And then after a while, instead of desiring spiritual things, you begin to realize all these spiritual experiences themselves are just a higher form of attachment, so you don't want them, you just want God, whatever that is. Ultimately, it's even giving up the idea of wanting God, I mean, you know, at the very end of the path. But in the meantime, you're channeling this energy that's usually scattered all over the place in your life, trying to get happy by getting this and that and this and that. And you're directing it all in this one direction. And then you start walking, and then it starts pulling you like a magnet. When you said leads to insanity, it made me just think that maybe uh, insanity can be a very mundane thing, you know, that, that maybe just a, you know, effectiveness or achievement, things like that, could be looked at as insanity in terms of pulling you away from your, from the path. Um, by, by seeking power over others or see, seeking control to the extent that, you know, not just to do practice, but to get money or, you know, whatever. I mean, just... Look at the world. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. When you sort of leads to insanity, I thought, well, it's, 
Insanity is everywhere. Sure. In relation to that, don't you think that someone who is already was uh, is desperate to start asking for material things or prayer is already insane? Someone who's desperate to. I mean, who, someone who's already doing that, asking for asking for material things through prayer. They're already insane. They don't. They're not turning insane after after they do. Oh, okay. You could look at it this way. Yes, I meant this in a more relative sense. You may end up insane even in relation to your culture, but you could say we all start from a position of insanity, and the spiritual path is about achieving sanity. That would not be a bad way to put it. But way back in the beginning, you you seem to imply that it, wherever you started out, I mean, even if you were praying for, say, a Cadillac, the very act of praying might lead you to more spiritual things. It will lead you to more spiritual things if you pray for Cadillac. Then you get a Cadillac. And then you go to get in your Cadillac and uh, you find out it's been stolen. And your insurance had expired the day before and there was a little technical gap and now you're not going to get any insurance from it, right? And not only that, the person who steals the Cadillac, takes it down the block and runs over someone and they sue you because you're the owner of the Cadillac and have left the keys in and now they're going to come and take your house and everything. I mean, we can keep going. You see, a spiritual path may begin just by your praying for a Cadillac and getting it. Now, if you stick with that, do you see what I mean? If you took the Cadillac as an answer to the prayer, then why don't you take everything else as an answer to your prayer? If you could take everything else as an answer to your initial prayer to become happy, you would have a tremendously powerful spiritual path. Tremendously powerful. Most people, they pray for the Cadillac. They get it, they thank God. They lose the Cadillac, they start cursing God. They get sued, and then they curse and curse, and finally they're stripped of everything, and they are so bitter and angry and furious, you see, they're better off not praying for the Cadillac to begin with. But the crucial test, the turning point, the crossroads will come somewhere along the line, and that's, that's what's important, not whether you got the Cadillac or not. What, what you just described is the story of Job. Exactly, you see, exactly. And I wasn't even thinking about Job, but these are archetypal stories. They keep coming back into consciousness because... This is the way things are. You're exactly right. That is the story of Job. Curse God and die, all his friends said. And that's what saved Job. He would not curse God and die. He wouldn't just sit there and accept it. He went on a spiritual quest to find out what is the meaning of all this. This isn't about just sitting back and saying, oh, well, it's God's will. No, he wants to know. And what does he find out? The end of the story of Job, it's a big mystery. God doesn't answer his question in the way that we think we're going to get an answer when we start a spiritual path. So it never is what you expect. You start off and you're, you're going down a, a dark alley. You don't know what's at the end of it. If you know, then you don't need it. If you know, you don't need to go. Exactly, right. Okay, it's been a, a long morning here. And you're welcome to stay, and uh, we have some tea in there, and check out our library, and glad you could make it.